edition of the Lady Science Podcast. This podcast is a monthly deep dive on topics centered on women and gender in the history and popular culture of science. With you every month are the editors of Lady Science Magazine. I'm Anna Reeser, co-founder and co-editor-in-chief of Lady Science. I'm a writer, editor, and PhD student studying 20th century American culture and history of the American space program in the 1960s. I'm Layla McNeil, the other founder and editor-in-chief of Lady Science. I'm a historian of science and freelance writer with words in various places on the internet, and I'm currently a regular writer on women in the history of science at smithsonianmag.com. Uh, and I'm Rebecca Ortenberg, Lady Science's managing editor. When I'm not working with the Lady Science team, I can be found writing about museums and public history around the internet and managing research projects at the Science History Institute in Philadelphia. So before we get started on what we're going to talk about today, we want to thank everyone who left us a rating and a review on iTunes this past month. Um, so your ratings and reviews increase our visibility so that new listeners can find us, but it was also just really nice to see that so many of you are enjoying the podcast, so thank you. And as promised, those who wrote a review between February and this episode have been entered into a drawing to win a free Lady Science tote bag. So. Without further ado, drum roll. Drum roll. <laughs> um, okay, so the winner is someone with the name of Cheesy Gal, <laughs> which I can get behind that. I dig cheese, um, if that's what that means. Um, so Cheesy Gal, um, she wrote, or he wrote, or they wrote, whoever. Um, I can't get enough lady science. Their brilliance translates superbly from the page to the podcast. I love the ruminations on the UFOs, and I love their guests who bring such interesting stories with them. Now all we need is a YouTube or Twitch channel, and we can get our lady science always, all the time. <laughs> I can't make any promises. I don't want anyone to see me speaking Ever. on YouTube. So, <laughs> but, but I appreciate, we appreciate the sentiment all the same. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, so if this is you, please get in touch with us and send us an email to ladiescienceinfo at gmail.com so that we can get your mailing information and so that you can let us know which tote bag you want, um, which logo you'd like, either the oil lamp or the um, burning bra logo. Um, so again, ladiescienceinfo at gmail.com. Let us know if that's you. Um, so thanks again to everyone who took the time to leave us a review. We really appreciate it. Um, please continue to leave us ratings and reviews, um, even if we're not giving away stuff. <laughs> um, so next month for the April podcast, episode eight, we're going to be talking about the ridiculous, bizarre, and downright bonkers things men have believed and continue to believe about women's bodies. Um, so things like how male physicians used to believe that if women did too much thinking, their uteruses would shrivel up. So we want to hear from you guys on this. If you've come across a weird thing that men have said about women's bodies from history to the present day, send it to us with a source link. We'll compile your submissions and feature some of them on April's podcasts, and we'll even give you a shout out for sending it to us. So email your weird thing, ladiescienceinfo at gmail.com, or tweet us at at Lady X Science. Uh, so for our episode today, um, we're going to be talking about the great man theory of history. 
so since March is Women's History Month, it might seem like this is maybe a weird topic to have for this episode, but we wanted to do this because we think that by explaining the historical roots of something like Great Man Theory and showing how it has permeated all corners of academic history and popular culture, we'll get a solid understanding of why we continue to need Women's History Month at all. Um, after we chat for a bit, we're going to have a pretty special guest joining us. Um, Marilyn Ogilvie is a historian of science who was part of a group of women's historians in the 1970s that began to recover the stories of women in the history of science. Uh, so let's get into it. Um, what exactly is the great man theory of history? Okay, so essentially the great man theory of history is the belief that history is made and structured by the influence of great men these heroic figures who possess a variety of traits that made them natural leaders. So this theory of history was popularized in the 19th century by Thomas Carlyle in his lectures on historical heroes, which were very subtly titled On Heroes, Hero Worship, and the Heroic in History. Uh, Carlyle wrote that, quote, the history of the world is but the biography of great men, end quote. Um, so he lists off a series of great men throughout history to try and demonstrate his point. Men like the Prophet Muhammad, Napoleon, Shakespeare, you get the idea. So he also believed that the traits that made for a great man, a history-making man, were more or less the same for all men. And that these traits, as I'm sure you can guess, include things like intelligence and genius, political and military prowess. So Carlyle says that these men should always be seeking a higher truth, which he described as quote, a sort of savage sincerity, not cruel, far from that, but wild, wrestling naked with the truth of things, end quote. <laughs> uh, so these naked wrestling men are also supposed to be <laughs> valiant and virtuous and inspire all other men to achieve and embody the characteristics of these great men. And so this is essentially your masculinity how-to guide for um, 19th century men. Uh, so this theory obviously has a lot of a lot of problems, um, and it has really influenced who we see as being worthy of being included in the historical record. Um, so obviously, one of the big problems with this theory is that there's just there's no room for women in it at all. Right. And I think we can even back up a little bit and talk sort of at a maybe a little theoretical level about about what is history? Is history the past or is it a set of stories we tell about the past and who decides, you know, which stories we get to tell about the past because you can't tell all of them. Um, we can't create a complete high resolution record of everything that's ever happened. So there's a lot of selection going on. So who decides how to tell stories and about whom we should tell stories and understanding that the history of that process is its own field of study as well. So there's all kinds of like crunchy theoretical stuff that we don't necessarily have to go into, but um, I think it's important just to, to Oh, I'm going to use the word to problematize the idea <laughs> of history itself, because that helps us to see that um, there is not like one 
objective way of telling stories about the past, that people made decisions about how we should do that. And often those decisions leave out a whole bunch of people, particularly women. Yeah, and I think embedded in this theory also is an idea of history as progress. And because the people that get these kind of heroic histories or or are we consider heroes, people who, in this view, have moved the world or whatever forward in some sort of way. So if we're looking at someone like Napoleon or Shakespeare or something like that, that that there's a perceived forward movement and um, the work or the influence that they had made, which we don't agree with here. (laughs) Just because now I've pegged myself as being this person in this conversation, we should also think about uh, who decides which direction forward is. And, you know, there's and for who? Yeah, that's that's a socially and culturally constructed idea about what is progress and what counts as progress. You know, industrial progress means like a huge regression for like workers. So anyway, things like that. Go ahead, Rebecca. I didn't mean to jump on you. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no problem. Uh, just one thing I was thinking about uh, as you guys were talking was the other reason why this is super important, I think, is that it's easy for people to say, well, you know, history of various marginalized people, history of women, a history of people of color. Uh, No one meant to leave them out. Uh, It was just that like, those are sources are harder to find. Um, and, And so we talk about great men because that was like the top of the deck and like we're making our way like through the deck. Looking at something like great man theory, looking at the way that like 19th century, folks thought about history uh, goes to show that none of that was inevitable and uh, that that was based on a certain idea of the way that history should work and what kind of sources were valuable. And yeah, that those were all value judgments. It's not just a matter of like people started by researching the easy stuff and then like research the harder stuff later. It's also not inevitable that there aren't sources about marginalized people because they didn't have access to like... (laughs) You know, what about people who who couldn't read or write or or people who weren't allowed to be in positions where it was important for them to correspond with other people? And so we have letters about them, you know, things like that. None of this is inevitable, I guess, is what we're really driving at here. Yeah. And um, the the characteristics that this theory um, inscribes onto people worthy of being recorded, obviously, are things that are traditionally associated with men, um, military prowess, um, intelligence, those types of things. And so when we look at at a historical record to make choices about whose story we're going to tell, that if we think that those are the characteristics that are worthy of recording, those are the people we're going to pick out those types of things have determined who we decide to include. And when that comes to women, and we're trying to recover the voices of women, that we have also picked out the women that most resemble those traditional masculine characteristics. Definitely come back around to when we talk about feminist criticisms of this, but... um, Yeah, and I I think the other thing uh, that I always find fascinating about this is the reminder of how much this approach to 
historical thinking is very recent. Like the 19th century wasn't that long ago. Uh, and these, you know, these great men theories of history come out of that. And also ideas about like history is moving in a progressive way come out of that. Uh, and we are, we are in some ways still trapped by all of these crazy Victorians and their ideas about how the world works. Well, and the fact that like the modern discipline of history, as we sort of understand it now, comes from the 19th century. Yeah. And it comes from people like Carlisle, who they, they see themselves, these Victorians, as sort of like riding the quest, the crest of the wave of progress into the future. And they think that they have some kind of like heroic duty to preserve all of the heroic things that they're doing. <laughs> and so there's like, there's a lot of like self-serving uh, individualistic, I guess, um, impetus behind designing this kind of historical practice. And I think if we could use words like designing to, to talk about it as being like an intentional thing, that's, um, it's not just they scooped up this method out of the ether. <laughs> uh, right. This is something right. that they're interested in doing because it impacts on their own legacies as well. If we can remember ourselves as being historic, then our names will live on, yeah. Yeah, and I think that that's important to emphasize is that um, history, the way that we tell history, that the way we narrate it, those things are choices that people make. Like history, just like science, doesn't just like fall out of the sky into our laps and we're just like repeating facts. That there are people involved and that means people are making choices. Um, so I think that's something really important to keep in mind if we're doing this kind of meta thinking about, you know, the field of history, which feels like grad school again. <laughs> it does indeed. <laughs> Maybe we'll have an episode about what is science. And then oh, we'll God. be in second year grad school. <laughs> Great. Are you going to make me read Butterfield again? <laughs> That's some inside history of science baseball for you right there. <laughs> <laughs> so because of this theory's many, many problems uh, that we've been laying out, uh, it has largely fallen out of favor with academic historians. Though God knows it sometimes feels like it hasn't fallen out <laughs> of favor as much as like Many academic historians like to think it has, but that's a whole yeah. other thing. Considering I still tussle with academic historians about this very issue on Twitter. Exactly. Yeah. So. And they would be horrified they would be horrified by the idea that they were in any way still influenced by Carlyle's ideas about the world. Right. Um, but thankfully there have been a lot of other models uh, that have come to the fore. Uh, cultural historians, Marxist historians. Uh, feminist and women's history historians have all worked to really dismantle this uh, hegemonic way of looking at the world. And a lot of this came out of the 1960s, um, when a lot of people, a lot of scholars started talking about history from below, uh, or people's history. And these are the ideas that you should approach the study of history from the perspective of non-elites of various kinds, uh, of disenfranchised people, of people in the margins of society. Uh, history from below is a particular phrase uh, that's widely used, um, that became widely used after uh, historian E.P. Thompson wrote about it in an essay titled, appropriately, History from Below. Uh, he was a Marxist historian, and he studied the modern history of England through the lens of working class people and their experience and influence on English society. 
Uh, and so the phrase, a people's history, um, is still widely used to identify this kind of particular history from below approach. Uh, so we have books like A People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn, um, which probably has a wider popular reading than a lot of these kinds of history, um, but also A People's History of Chicago by Kevin Cole, or A People's History of Computing by Lady Science's own Joy Rankin, which is coming out in October this year. Woohoo! Yay! Yay, Joy! <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so some of the feminist responses to this have, there's been many of them. So I'm just going to cover um, a couple um, and kind of highlight the ones that we do cover or approach a lot in the magazine itself. Um, so one of these, and this is probably the one that is most common in popular culture or in popular history writing. Um, and this is called the her story type of history. Um, so this tackles the assumption that women just weren't there doing stuff that mattered at all. Um, so her story approach to the history of science elevates women like the Marie Curies. I don't know if you've heard about Marie Curie, <laughs> Anna, Rebecca, um, <laughs> the Ada Lovelaces. Um, Wait, is and... that Pierre Curie's uh, wife? Sorry. <laughs> Couldn't help myself. Sorry. I'm just going to mute my microphone while you're talking so I don't do that anymore. <laughs> we are a pro Stark podcast. Let's be oh, yeah. <laughs> so, elevating these types of women and so on um, is an attempt to show that women were, in fact, they're doing important work. They were, in fact, they're doing science. Um, and But they've just been typically overlooked by this narrative of history that that favors men. Um, so an example that I'm going to use because this comes up every single time the Nobel Committee hands out its prizes. Um, when we look at the list of Nobel Prize winners in science, it's mostly men. And lots of people still, I can't believe there's still men out there that do this every single time the list of Nobel winners comes out. Um, they'll say, see, women weren't doing science. <laughs> Um, just because they didn't win a Nobel. Um, so a her story response would be to elevate those women who did, which includes Marie Curie twice. <laughs> <laughs> um, and this also includes what we call recovery work. So the recovery of women who have been overlooked in our traditional retellings of science. And a little later, um, like Rebecca said earlier, we're going to talk to Marilyn Ogilvie, whose early work included this, this type of stuff on a pretty massive scale. Um, so another type of feminist response is, uh, to look at the superficial assessment of women's work in science and, um, critique it in a way to show that it was the structures that favored male scientists over women. So continue with my Nobel example, this critique would not only look at the gender bias that could be baked into the Nobel Committee itself, but looks beyond even that to the larger social and cultural structures in place that kept women from practicing science on the same level as men. Um, and this is something that we, we do a lot in the magazine. And then another response is challenging the misogynistic and sexist interpretations of women that have been embedded in the historical narrative because it has been largely written by and about men. So this one confronts the misogyny of scientific institutions and well-known male figures like Charles Darwin or 
Richard Feynman, who referred to women as skirt. Um, <laughs> and it argues for a gender analysis of scientific theories and scientific practice. So that Charles Darwin's a good example of that um, and how he integrated a lot of his own beliefs and, you know, 19th century cultural beliefs about women and men into his theories of um, um, sexual selection and natural selection more broadly. Um, and so this is, that's yet another approach that we often utilize in the magazine is applying a gender analysis to scientific practice. Um, and there certainly are others, but these can give you an idea of just how much work actually goes into tearing down this great man narrative of history, because it's literally everywhere. Even we have to structure our work considering it. Yeah. So I think with regard to what we do in the magazine, um, the, what you've called the her story approach is something that we typically do, we don't do, um, especially about figures that are already well known. Like we don't talk about Marie Curie unless it's to talk about how much we don't want to talk about Marie Curie, like what I'm doing right now. Um, <laughs> but it also um, goes back to what Layla was saying about the way that if you if you pursue this kind of um, her story revision of history, you end up looking for only women who have the same qualities as the great men. So there, there are a very limited number of women who are able to like, reach the same level as men in certain periods of time. And it gives you this false impression that there were only a certain number of women doing anything at that time because you're looking for a very strict set of qualities that usually only applies to men. So I think one of the most important things that we talk a lot about in the magazine is broadening our sort of search criteria for women. And for us, that means also broadening what we mean when we talk about science, because um, men mostly have decided what we mean when we say science. Um, so that's something that feminist histories of science can redress as well as the definition of science, which then, then you're starting to talk about housewives um, and uh, the women who edited their husband's books, things like that, as being practitioners. The her story approach is like, it's an essential first step, I think, right? You have to be able to at least find some women to talk about it all because you need you need those historical case studies to start building theory that you can use for other things. But that's definitely like a first step. And for the magazine, at least, we try to push beyond that as much as possible. Yeah, and I think because we do recognize that there there is a lot of work out there um, that has already gone into recovering um, some of those really prominent um, women scientists that, that we know. And because people are already covering them, I feel like it really is important to not let them take up all the real estate in our public consciousness and to look beyond, look beyond seeing history as the making of single people and single individuals. Um, and so if we're, like I said, or like Anna said, th these are essential first steps, like recovering individual women like that. But if we're just switching out a female scientist or a female leader for, you know, and putting that in the place of like our male leaders or great, 
man history, we're doing great woman history, we're going to bump up against a lot of the same problems. Because at that point, we're still going to be covering mostly white women, mostly upper class women, women who had the privileges that other women don't. Um, We're still overlooking huge classes of people as groups. And so I don't think that just switching out um, men and women in our historical narratives is going to really redress the um, misogyny that's built into, um, you know, the historical record. And yeah, I, uh, especially the, we're, we're taping this right the, the day after two days after, um, international women's day. And, uh, there was once again, a lot of the quote, well-behaved women r- rarely make history going on around the internet, <laughs> which is like my bugaboo, fury point um because it's such a good quote in its actual context uh which is uh for those of you who don't know well-behaved people rarely make history was a commentary on by laurel thatcher ulrich um from i think a paper she wrote in grad school or something uh funnily enough uh that but a commentary on what we're talking about now which is that everyday women Uh, women who weren't elite don't end up in these traditional masculine historical records. And that's a problem. And so we should redefine what we think of as history so that well-behaved women get recognized as well. Um, And that doesn't mean that all of the ill-behaved women are uh, not worth studying, but uh, it's important to rethink the structural issues underneath all of this. Maybe a, a synthetic way to say that is just that it requires, generally speaking, a lot of a lot of privilege and social and cultural advantage to break boundaries. And so if we're going to be focused only on people who are able to do that, we're going to be focused on only a certain like select elite slice of societies. Uh, one thing where uh, I see this really interest like structurally like literally structurally shows up uh is in historic preservation the thing about a lot of funding and recognition in public history uh is that you have to spend a lot of time arguing about significance that's not necessarily bad it's good to like prove why the government or anyone else should give you money to study or preserve or interpret a certain historical figure but uh, significance, of course, has built into it all of these great man ideas of history that we've been talking about, uh, including in, I'm going to talk about in particular, the uh, national historical landmark status. There's various historic preservation statuses in the federal government, and that's the, the highest one. And it basically means that you can't destroy something or you can only, like, you can there's some, you can like get your private residence on historical, national historical landmark status. It doesn't mean that it's publicly owned in any way, but it means that you can't change it or you can't significantly change it because it represents a historical something or other. And there are a number of specific criteria uh, that that is built on first. And like it, the criteria can um, be a combination of things, but the two main ones are quote, sites where events of national historical significance occurred, um, or two, places where prominent persons lived or worked, or three, icons of ideals that shaped the nation. And then there are three more that are a little bit more social history friendly. Um, outstanding, Outstanding examples of design or construction, 
places characterizing a way of life, or archaeological sites able to yield information. Uh, so as you can guess, it's, pro it's a lot easier to get especially the landmark status based on the first couple than it is on the other ones. So what does that mean for whose stories we can tell in, the, uh, in kind of the built environment? It limits us. And what I find most interesting is where different uh, national historical landmarks or national register sites that are dedicated to famous um, sort of famous uh, women, the sort of great women of history types of places have been able to say, okay, we're a museum, we're able to preserve because of this important her story, but we're going to use that to talk about marginalized people. Uh, there's a few different um, historic houses that do this. Uh, one that I'm just going to mention real quick right now is uh, the Harriet Beecher Stowe House in Connecticut is really interesting because they have a, you know, it's a historic house. You can go and take tours and learn all about Harriet Beecher Stowe's life and writing Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, you can also go to lots of programs about uh, both contemporary and the history of various racial and social justice initiatives. And uh, they spend, their, their mission is specifically focused on, in kind of in the spirit of Harriet Beecher Stowe's interest in racial justice, we're going to keep talking about racial justice and marginalized people. Uh, so I think that there's interesting ways that her story approaches can be used to also critique and discuss these larger narratives that I think is really interesting. Um, by way of wrapping up, we just wanted to talk a little bit about the ways that this as Rebecca and Layla both said, this stuff is still everywhere. This is still, um, we're still arguing about great man history on Twitter of all places. Maybe we can just talk a little bit about the, the problem that I have with this still being so prevalent and sort of like having to do like historical, like public history, a whack-a-mole about it is that how much oxygen it takes up from other projects like this. Um, that we could be talking about or, you know, lending our support to. Uh, so I don't know if you guys have any good examples of things you've seen recently. It's just made you want to tear your hair out. But. I do because I've been, <laughs> I've been grappling with it. this on Twitter the last couple of days. So the, the stuff that I do for um, Smithsonian Magazine is I cover one woman a month, which kind of veers into the her story thing that I was actually just criticizing a minute ago. But I really do try to um, choose women who have, who don't actually fit into the her story thing. So for example, I've got a piece coming about uh, out about a woman who was doing science and cancer experiments in her barn. Um, and so how she was operating on kind of the fringes of, of science and of institutions to do the work that she wanted to do. So I, 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 I try to um, add in kind of those um, critical feminist components, even if I'm writing about individual women. So because I don't choose to write about Marie Curie again and again and again and again, um, I get kind of I've been kind of criticized for that lately. So. Um, I, I guess not criticized, but more of a well actualing of everybody wow. on the internet. Um, so for Women's History Month, they collected the articles that I've written and a few others have written about women in the history of science over the past year and made a collection out of them. 
and they um, promoted it uh, at the beginning of Women's History Month. They bumped it on International Women's Day. And on International Women's Day, I got just, you know, people saying, well, don't forget about Marie Curie or don't forget about Carolyn Herschel or don't forget about Maria Mitchell or don't forget about like it just like went on of all of these women that always without a doubt will pop up on a listicle of the 10 unsung women of science like we know about them we know who these famous women are now like we can't keep calling them unsung when they each have like (laughs) you know 100 dedicated biographies about them when they are the only ones that appear on unsung lists like those aren't the stories that I'm interested in telling, but it's like, if I don't mention them, it's like somehow an oversight on my end rather than a conscious choice for me to not write the same story about the same women over and over and over again. That's been really frustrating for me anyways. The last couple of days is just, I'm not even responding to those comments anymore um, or engaging them because I think it's silly and there is a lot of well actually component in it coming from men um, that they know one famous female scientist and they want me to know about that. (laughs) In case you haven't heard of these people, Layla, (laughs) in case you're unaware. One thing that Layla and I have talked a lot about and done even a little bit of public writing about is the cumulative effect of historians or like history buff type people like i don't know riding around twitter on their steeds of justice myth busting about darwin and galileo it's just like taking up more energy and time um away from you know histories that we could write about unknown people or marginalized people and just spending so much time shrieking at people for um, the temerity to believe something they read once about Galileo saying something to his tribunal that he shouldn't have said. And it's just like huge discourse of and publishing industries that revolve around these great man figures. You've got your Darwin industry. There is a Galileo industry. Um, it's just one part of it. There's also this like the way that it feeds into our conversation and our collective consciousness in um, in the form of this like minutia policing that is just overwhelming. So then not only does the the like academic discourse become all about men, the the popular history publishing industry becomes all about men, but just our sort of day-to-day impression of the history of the world is just about people defending Galileo from misinterpretation or something like that. So it's like, I think it's important to think about it in terms of being prevalent um, at all levels of how we think about history, even just your sort of like casual mention of some figure while you're talking on Twitter and then somebody like gallops in there to tell you you're wrong. But they never gallop in there to tell you about a woman that you never knew about, you know? Right. But they will gallop in to tell you about a woman that you are calling a scientist who they don't think Ah, is actually a scientist. Which is the other thing I feel like that takes so much energy out of everything is, you know what, I have complicated feelings about Ada Lovelace and how she's represented in popular culture. But like, can we talk about something besides arguing again about whether or not she was actually a computer programmer? Um, And maybe just like talk about what she did do or like what she was actually like or like her crazy batshit history because again, Victorians were crazy. (laughs) 
<laughs> but instead, it's like, oh, do we have to, like, wring our hands about whether, like, dudes on the internet agree, like, have agreed that we can call her a computer programmer. And when you're talking about terminology like that, it the people who I've seen that are sort of the most vocal about that are really bringing a knife to a gunfight because they're arguing with historians about like this kind of terminology and they're not like if you want to have that argument with a historian you're gonna have to do a little bit of reading you can't just say (laughs) that she wasn't a computer programmer because you don't want the founder of your profession to have been a woman like you have to if you want to have that discussion then you need to you know you have to have tools to do it to bring some nuance to it like not that i you know think that there's some certain like elitism about history there is and I don't want to defend that but uh those are like actual historiographic um discussions that you can have about um the use of terminology from today for people in the past and things like that right I see this a lot with um like Hedy Lamar, who um this led to some real interesting harassment of me (laughs) on on Twitter uh, last year. But um, so the, I mean, for a bite-sized tweet, it typically goes around, Hedy Lamar invented Wi-Fi, right? So we've kind of got two problematic things going on there, invented and (laughs) (laughs) Wi-Fi. And I, I appreciate that. And I do think that there needs to be some nuance there. But I think we also need to think about why we have to feel the need to describe women as inventors and discoverers and those types of glorified positions for us to care about them. We feel like we have to do that because that's how we have cared about men. Those are the men that have gotten recognized in our histories. Those are the ones that we love. Those are the ones we care about. Those are the heroes, whatever. So this is our attempt to try to get women the same recognition by ascribing those uh, characteristics to them. And I think Hedy Lamarr is a really good example of that. I think in the case of Hedy Lamarr in particular, it's sort of extra pernicious and extra sexist the way that she's talked about because you get these sort of narratives. I just listened to a review of the documentary that's coming out about her um, yesterday. And the way they were describing her is like, not only was she a great beauty, which is apparently just not enough, you know, like you can be literally, she was called the most beautiful woman in the world, but we still talk about it. Like not only was she a great beauty, she was an inventor, which means that she's extra worth our notice. Like not only was she, she had a whole career as an actress, but yeah. now she's, she's really worth our notice now. And we should recover her story now because we've been able to label her as an inventor. And that's something that we value. And we don't, as much as we think we do, we don't actually value women for being beautiful. That's not, we don't consider that a contribution. Uh, right. This is a, you know, this is a real contribution. She's an inventor. Right. And it doesn't help that the movie is called Bombshell. Wasn't that the name of Richard Rhodes' book too? Was Bombshell? I think that's what it's adapted I think from. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. That sounds right. Yeah. Well, I mean, the cover of Richard Rhodes' book had her like straddling a rocket or something, didn't it? A torpedo. A torpedo. So, you know, I mean, so sure. (laughs) Yeah. We saw, like, that also happened with, um, oh, just a funny anecdote. When 
Science Friday put out a tweet about Hedy Lamar, I think it was, and described her as beautiful. And I like <laughs> jumped on that right away. And they changed it. They Aww. they went and they changed um, the copy on on that piece about her. So appreciate that. Good job, Science Friday. Um, if you would like my consulting on your other stories on women and science, I am happy to step up for that. Um, but I also remember in, um, Cosmos, the Neil deGrasse Tyson one on the episode, women got one episode, (laughs) the lady episode, episode, um, and with Cecilia Payne and they described her as, um, as a beauty, I think it was, um, like it's just, it's, it's really, um, it's, it's. The way we talk about women in pop culture, women scientists in pop culture is really is really gross. <laughs> and so I guess that's a, a good place to end this segment and go ahead and bring in our guest. So um, our guest interview today is Marilyn Ogilvy. She is curator emeritus of the History of Science collections at the University of Oklahoma professor of bibliography emeritus and professor emeritus in the history of science department. She is the author of three books, Marie Curie, a biography and sweeping the stars, the story of Carolyn Herschel and the two volume biographical dictionary of women in science. And she is the co-author of another, a dame full of vim and vigor, a biography of Alice Middleton, boring an American biologist in China. It's kind of special for me and, Anna, because we went to the University of Oklahoma um, for grad school. Anna's still there. Um, And so, um, and that's where Dr. Ogilvy hails from. So um, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. So we've been talking about great man history, which is, I guess, the opposite of the kind of history that you write. And so... We just wanted to talk to you a little bit about your work, and I guess the best place to start is where you started, and and if you can tell us a little bit about how you got into, how you decided to become a historian, and were you always interested in studying women in science in particular, maybe there's an origin story there, a revelation you had, or a mentor, something that sparked your interest. Okay, well... I got into the history of science by accident. Uh, I had been in East Africa for two years teaching, and we came back to Norman uh, in order to, I thought, pursue a, uh, me, pursue a PhD uh, in uh, zoology. Well, and uh, I had, uh, at that time, I guess just one, one six-month, six-month-old baby. And so I thought it would be a good thing to just do that. So I enrolled in a couple of zoology classes then wandered over into the History of Science collections where somebody told me it was, that they had a nice, a uh, lot of books there, interesting books. And so I uh, thought, well, you know, I'll just take a reading course in that. And so anyway, that's what happened, and I got hooked. But the History of Science that I took, I was told, I totally bought into the great man theory. Because in our definition of science, well, it's, it's the attempt of man to explain natural phenomena by using, um, um, uh, uh, by creating a theory that uh, explains the phenomena. Okay, I, I believe that. And after I uh, 
did my uh, dissertation on actually Robert Chambers and the vestiges of the natural history of creation, thought I'd be a, a historian of biology probably, we moved to uh, Portland, Oregon. And I taught a, a class, and it was a survey course in the history of science. And I signed a paper, this was my want, and uh, I told them they could write on anything they wanted to, but they should clear it with me. Well, a couple of girls came up after class and said, we thought we would write something on women in science. Oh, that's a good idea. What do you, come back tomorrow or our next class meeting and tell me what you decided. So next meeting after class was over, they trod up to the front of the room and said, well, you know, we can only find one woman of science that we would like, and that's, of course, Marie Curie. And I, and I thought, hmm, that's strange. That's really what I think of. And so anyway, I, then that, I thought, well, it can't be right. That just can't be right. And now this had to be, let's see, in the 1970s. And uh, so I thought, well, I'll just see what I can find. And so I began to, to search to see if I could find some women in science. And that's what began, what the first part of it culminated in, a, in the uh, first biographical dictionary that I uh, wrote by myself, and that one was uh, published in 1986. And I came back to Norman, and oh, well, how do you how do you go about it? Well, I found first of all I had had names. I, I who, who were they? So I uh, found a book that was published in 1913, I think the first edition by H. J. Mozans. It's called Women in Science. I can't remember exactly, but it was a pseudonym. He was a, a Catholic priest, and uh, he had gotten all the names of these of the women in science. Well, a little biography of them. So I started out there, and I began to make a list. I made a list of those. Then I found other um, biographical di um, dictionaries, and particularly women in medicine. And uh, Kate Campbell Herdmead was one, uh, um, History of Medicine, Women in Medicine. So I wrote those names down. And then I began a huge search, and you know, no computers, so I would find, it was kind of the footnote trail that we were, know so much about. You find one, and then you uh, follow up that, to a, and that gives you a little bit of clue of where you're gonna go. And then by this time, it's beginning to be a kind of an end thing to do, and I didn't know it when I was doing it to start out with. There were a lot of people beginning to work in women in science. So I found all of the secondary literature there, followed that up, used their um, bibliographies, footnotes to, to go to the primary sources pretty much. And then um, any biographical dictionary that I found, actually the, the bibliographies uh, from the um, British Museum and the Bibliothèque Nationale and then the Library of Congress uh, told me the works, and so then I would work with that. And uh, then all of the women in the ancient sources in plenty, and I found these little little squibs of information. And I wanted to get as much as I could from there. Um, so I ended up with, I'm not sure how many, I think it was 180-something women in science when this um, biographical dictionary was published in 1986, and I had really good luck with getting that published because uh, I met June Goodfield, who you all may know, who 
uh, uh, did a lot of work in women in science. And she was in Norman, Oklahoma, for some strange reason. And I was at a, some sort of a party where she was. And we got to talking, and, she, and I told her what I was doing. And she said, oh. She says, may I see it? And I said, well, it's kind of not in any shape to be seen yet, but sure. And she says, why don't I come over to your house for breakfast the next morning? I thought, ugh, June Goodfield in my house for breakfast? Oh, boy. And so she did come over, and uh, she was so helpful. She was, she's British. And uh, she said, well, I know Everett, Everett Mendelssohn, that being, at Harvard. And so she talked to him, and that's when I got, she, uh, he suggested that I try MIT Press. And that's when the very first biography, uh, Biobibliography, I guess, of, of women in science that worked out. Well, then after that got published, we, there was so much known, particularly by this time, Margaret Rossiter has published the first of her three uh, volumes on women in science. And she had gone around to every archive that you could imagine and gotten information there. So, of course, I, I thought that's an excellent thing. So I um, latched on to what I could from her work and uh, and I began to get a lot more women, and I thought my 180-some women that I had to start out with, that's just skimming the surface. And so Rutledge Press contacted me and said, we would like to have a, um, a dictionary of about 2,000 women in science. And I said, oh, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> and then, then, of course, obviously, I was not going to be able to do the research on, on all of these, so it became a, an edited volume. And my good friend, Joy Harvey, was interested in it as well. And so she and I worked, I don't know how many hours, getting the, um, writing the, the um, biographies. And then we asked other people to, to contribute to it, and we had a lot of uh, contributors to it as well. So we got very close to our... Um, goal there of the numbers. It's just, it's amazing how that field has changed. So that's sort of a, a, a brief something <laughs> or other of how I got where I got. <laughs> well, speaking of how the field has changed, um, I'm curious, what was the what was the reception to some of the work that you and your colleagues started doing about women in the history of science? And do you think that the reception to work like that has changed over the last 40 years or so? Oh, yeah, I think it definitely has. Um, again, I, I was sort of naive. I was a newly minted PhD when I started all of this. I, it, it, here, it's certainly, uh, we weren't teaching any courses at the University of Oklahoma that had to do with women in science because actually women weren't scientists. You know, they, 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 that was kind of an oxymoron. And so, so uh, um, I, I, it, was, it was so gradual. And I began to go to the um, History of Science Society meetings, and they, they began to increase their interest in women in science. And so there were various sessions, but they were kind of segregated sessions, actually. Mostly women, mostly women in the women in science sessions. And then... Uh, uh, but again, it's it has changed to such a uh, great degree. I think it's I think what what has been done. There, there are lots of biographies out. In fact, I have one out going to be published. I should be having the proofs right now on Margaret Neese, who was a, um, a, a American ornithologist, and uh, 
there are a lot, so many biographies of, of uh, women scientists that are there today, and and we have to. It means we broaden our definition of what science is. We we talk about not just what uh, the actual theoretical science is, but all of the, the things that make this science possible, and so many women are involved in that. It would be impossible to do a biographical dictionary, and thank goodness for computers, to, to get everybody there up, up into even the, uh, the, the, after our 2000 when there were, we missed I don't know how many women up into our cutoff point there. So, so. Uh, Well, so I wanted to ask um, a little more specifically about um, evidence and sources, and um, we were talking about um, how part of the reason that we have this sort of great man history is that all these great men have so many letters um, and their own published works um, and just so many sources to draw on. And um, a lot of times, like you just said, we're talking about women who weren't considered to be practicing science anyway. And so you know, if they had correspondence, it wasn't saved because they were just secretaries. And so I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about um, what kinds of sources um, we have to look at when we're trying to recover these women's stories. That is so true, because even in the, uh, the biographical dictionaries, um, uh, general dictionaries, for instance, Pogendorf, which has all the, the European scientists um, or it tends to, there aren't women, very many, there are very few women in there, although I had to search through it all. And also, in the college archives, oftentimes they didn't save uh, the works of the women scientists, they just weren't there. And you had to really work around that to, to find anything. And of course, um, some from antiquity up there, women used men's names uh, in order to get their works published, and we don't know how many of those were there. We know that Lavoisier's uh, wife probably did an awful lot of the work that he was credited for. We also know that um, in uh, Plato's Academy, there were a couple of, uh, at least supposedly, there were a couple of women who dressed as men, and so that they could uh, be accepted in Plato's Academy. And then we had, well, women had different strategies, some very, very clever, in order to get their works published. And also there's this idea of women's work, quote, women's work. And home, ec home economics was a, an area where women could do chemistry. Uh, it, was, it was acceptable there, and they could even get academic positions. Women could uh, do observational kinds of work in uh, astronomy, particularly thinking of the Harvard College Observatory that hired a bunch of women computers to uh, uh, do their work. Well, by digging into that, we were able to find, or I was able to find some biographical information. And there's some very, very wonderful, there's a wonderful um, recent book on those uh, computers that's out now. And, and, ever, and I really appreciate that because it was difficult to get to that when I was working on them. And then um, in, in Britain, the same thing. In the, the, Women's colleges, where the history of them gave you an awful good idea of, of how and why women were not um, being accepted. But if you dig in, you would find that they were. So it's a tremendously complicated situation. It's, they're, they're there, 
but finding them. And it's and see what strategies both the women used to get their works published and uh, or out there, whether it was published or not. And then, um, the, and also another thing was the idea of collaborating with a part, a male partner. Usually it was a husband, maybe it was a brother, and uh, um, but the women very seldom got the credit. The the, the male partner did. But then when you got in and when you would look at their actual works, and I tried to do that, you would say, wow, this is what she did. Um, early on, uh, both earlier in, uh, when the, just the three of us were talking and when you were uh, talking about your work, um, we've, you know, Marie Curie has come up a lot uh, in terms of like the one like woman in, woman in science that people think of. Uh, and thankfully, uh, because of the work that you have done and other scholars like you have done, there are many other women that are recognized uh, both in scholarship, but also even a little bit more in, in popular culture as important women in science. Uh, are there any figures that you, in particular, like what's, who, are, who is someone, a woman in, from the history of science that you wish was more popularly known or understood? Well, I'm going to tell you Margaret Neese. And, uh, <laughs> um, um, she was a, a woman who was, her father was a history professor, uh, and her um, mother was oh, just a, a very, was well-educated. She had uh, gone to Mount Holyoke and, and gotten a degree, but she her major interests were in uh, um society things that women proper women's work the thing where and then but but the kids had um, she had a, um, Margaret had a number of, of siblings and they kind of ran loose and had uh, all kinds of things uh, and uh, but her mother's goal was for her to marry and to have a family well she wasn't going to have any of that so she uh, went to Clark College and uh, was majoring there, but ah, oh, she met her future husband. They married, and she ended up having five little girls. And she never finished her PhD, and he did. He was a, a physiologist, but he eventually got a job in Norman, Oklahoma. And so that's how um, Margaret came to come to came to Norman, and she. It's amazing what how she managed to kind of I want to say con her, her male colleagues into accepting her because she wasn't uh, she was neither neither too too um, obnoxious about it all but she was very sneaky and got their got got their help she never finished her degree but she became the expert on some sparrows, and she, um, uh, well, she was well known uh, internationally with uh, Conrad Lorenz and uh, uh, Nico Tinberg and the, all the, the well-known animal behaviorists who thought that she was just, um, I want to say the cat's meow, but I won't. And uh, so, um, uh, so she became very uh, good friends with theirs and, and Ernst Meyer. And uh, so all of this, this relationship between her needs to be out there. It shows that, that she was able to um, juggle 
the family and the um, uh, research as well. Now, one of her daughters didn't think she did that as well as she might have. <laughs> she felt like uh, <laughs> she wrote a kind of a mommy dearest um, autobiography uh, about her mother. But it, uh, uh, her children and grandsons, who are now uh, still around, um, have been very, very helpful in this. And it's just, she's just a fascinating person because of all the, the strands that she managed to juggle. And that is a, something we find all throughout history as far as women in science. They're not just, just scientists. The men pretty much could go ahead and just do their thing. But women, no. <laughs> they had to balance it there. Yeah. Um, well, I have just one last, I guess, wrap-up question. Um, do you, I mean, I guess, where, where do you see, see the field kind of going next? Like, what, what work do you still see that needs to be done? Or what is really that historians need to be doing to continue the work, I guess? Well, I think that um, we basically need to keep doing what we're doing as far as, and not so much the, the biographical dictionary, the uh, prosopographical kind of thing that I started out doing, but working in detail of, 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 of the scientist's life, women or men, and seeing how the cultural, um, how culture is accepting, um, will accept women as, I think it's, it's changed so much just within, certainly within my lifetime, and it's, uh, which is a good long one, uh, but, uh, I remember my, uh, when I was a uh, graduate student at KU, um, I, I didn't know whether I wanted to go on, but I couldn't have gone on for a PhD there because uh, um, women, he, our major professors, didn't, he just didn't think women had any, any business doing that because they're going to get married and not go back and do their, just waste all that money and time to put into them. Besides, one of their... Uh, um, requirements for these field sciences was to spend the summer in Mexico. And it was not a good thing because the women, the one woman, well, she couldn't go in there with all those men. My goodness, they would have a, they didn't, they, what would you do about a bathroom? <laughs> so, that, that, honestly, that's what he said. And so, so uh, anyway, so things have changed. Things have changed and I think they will continue to change, I hope. And but it doesn't, and I think it's more not just having a, a, a separate women in science field, but have women integrated into the entire history of science. Uh, their place is there. It's not just a, it's a little isolated sub-section uh, of it, but I think it's a, a very integral question, part of the history of science. So I think that's where we, I hope that's where we go. And again, it's part of the general culture is um, involved there too. That's, that, that seems like a fabulous note to end on. <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. Um, it was such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for, for talking with us about your work and the field that we care so deeply about. Well, thank you so much. It's been fun. It's been great fun. And you're doing great things, I think. At the end of every podcast, 
hosts will unburden themselves with one thing in the news, their work, or the world in general. It's just annoying the crap out of them. So this is one annoying thing. The annoying thing that I have for us to talk about today is Mark Zuckerberg's $30 million donation to Harvard and MIT for literacy programs. So according to a reported piece in QZ that describes this, it says, quote, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, which Zuckerberg co-founded with his wife, Priscilla Chan, is giving a $30 million grant to the Harvard Graduate School of Education and Massachusetts Institute of Technology's Integrated Learning Initiative to launch Reach Every Reader. The program is a five-year initiative to build a web-based screening tool that diagnoses reading problems before kids can even read and to develop a set of home and school interventions that personalize literacy support for kids, parents, and teachers. The groups, so the groups at Harvard and MIT, will create a web-based assessment that will initially be given to about 2,000 students, identifying issues like poor phonological processing related to memory and retrieval, vocabulary problems and listening comprehension. Struggling readers will be identified and tracked into the future to see whether the interventions they get actually help and whether the original diagnosis was correct. Go! (laughs) (laughs) So there is a very telling quote in the uh, press release on the Harvard Graduate School of Education site uh, from the MIT president about what they're hoping this will do that I think is going to sum up pretty well everything that we have wrong with, we think is wrong about this. Uh, The quote is, at MIT, we approach problems as scientists and engineers by seeking to understand the brain science of how learning happens and by building innovative technologies and solutions to help. Great. I think this idea (laughs) that approaching a problem as a scientist is the not only is it the, the the assumption is it's the best way to approach any problem, but that it's like the most it's the approach with the most like moral clarity. <laughs> like we're scientists and we will take care of this. Okay, trust us. Uh, <laughs> you can't just build an app for everything. You can't. There are some things that an app is not the solution for. I mean, obviously, like. This is something Zuckerberg would be interested in, right? Like a web screening app that will solve all the problems. Like he's clearly invested in this idea that you can just build web technology and solve people's problems because that's how he made his fortune. So all of his problems were solved that way. Uh, (laughs) uh, It strikes me as a technocratic solution to um, a social problem, which to me is probably about paying teachers better um, and alleviating like poverty um, for these students, those things will probably contribute much more to improving their, their performance in school and reading. But as usual in this country, that's not something that we would prioritize when we can, instead of spending however much it would cost to pay all the teachers in this country, appropriately and alleviate poverty for children in the wealthiest country in the world. We can just have Mark Zuckerberg dump $30 million on the two of the most well-endowed universities on the planet. uh, And then we don't have to think about all the social stuff underlying what's probably going on here. 
Another thing about this is this idea of testing to see who's going to have problems with literacy before kids can even read, I think is a big problem because the things that affect a person's and a child's literacy has a lot to do with social environments. And putting an app into someone's, you know, life when they're living in an impoverished neighborhood or a neighborhood that has a lot of violence and stuff like that, that that's not fixing the social ill that is interrupting this child's ability to have literacy. <laughs> it's not taking into the whole picture of what makes a person and what makes a person be able to have uh, literacy and good education. And this just, you know, of course, like you, you said, Anne, is a technocratic solution to a social problem. It's also a medicalized solution to a social problem. They're talking about diagnosing these children right. um, and pathologizing um, their inability to read when they're too young to read. So not only is that cruel and it cites, it, it relocates what are social and environmental concerns onto the like body of the child themselves. They're also talking about tracking this into the future and like this is a uh, it will become like a stigmatized diagnosis that will stick with these kids, you know, throughout their education, that they were identified as poor readers before they could even read and that they had to have all of this like extra intervention and it'll go in their file. And, you know, I'm, I have personal experience with this. I like not in a different way. Like I wasn't pathologized as a kid, but I was labeled as gifted and talented um, but it's still a, another way of creating like a difference among kids that's like rooted in something that they have no control over. So you're just sort of sorting very young children into groups um, based on these arbitrary like, measurements. Yeah, arbitrary measurements, like this quantification of these abilities that haven't even like fully manifested yet. Like it's gross. It's really, I find this really upsetting. Like, Right. And it's, and giving it to Harvard and MIT, um, students as like a fun little research project. We'll just, we'll just say also that Harvard's endowment is $37 billion. And I think Harvard could fund this own project themselves if they wanted to. Zuckerberg could give his money to somebody that doesn't have $37 billion. Billion. Dollars. <laughs> yeah. And, um... And the other thing this doesn't, like, get at is, okay, so you diagnose the kids, uh, diagnose, which is, like, I want to throw up a little bit just, like, putting it that way. But what do you do next? So I'm glad you both are talking about what comes next, because I'm going to tell you what comes next. Oh, God. So. I'm terrified now. Once a child has been diagnosed, the personalized learning kicks in. The group will develop and deliver two interventions, one for kids and caregivers who are reading at home and one for kids and educators. Both interventions will have an app that's personalized for children and adults. Children can choose the content they want. Reading about athletes, musicians, or scientists, for example, the app will also deliver content tailored to the reading problems identified in their screening. I mean, this goes back to your point, or to like what we were kind of circling around or discussing earlier about like yeah the reason the reason why kids a lot of kids don't don't like like there's poor literacy in a lot of 
schools and uh, is is because the kids are dealing with like violence and hunger and um, and home insecurity and racism and all these things that make like learning to read not maybe as important because you gotta like make if this is some like real basic like Maslow hierarchy of needs shit like you're not gonna think put that much like cognitive work consciously or unconsciously into reading when you are a very young child who is like afraid for yeah and that's also this is also assuming not just on the teacher end that they have like an iPad for every student. I mean, a lot of, if, if there's a school that does have an iPad, sometimes it's one iPad for the entire class of like 30 kids, right? But also like on the parent side of this, like a lot of times, like when I was working in um, schools and I a lot of the schools that I worked in in one part of the city, um, a lot of the students were bilingual, but a lot of the parents only spoke Spanish. And so like how are parents supposed to know how to, you know, work this intervention when there's um, somewhat of a of a language barrier there. Like, it's really, I mean, there's just so many different factors going on here that they're making assumptions about what these schools look like, what these homes look like, where these kids are coming from. There's- and one more thing that occurs to me, just going back to kind of our, our regular theme of Silicon Valley reinventing things that already exist. So... Basically, this is just testing reading levels, giving kids more stuff to read that is at their reading level that they might want to read. This is a very, very, very <laughs> basic idea of how to solve childhood literacy that we have, that like the educators have been doing in various forms, successfully and unsuccessfully, again, depending on the social context, for forever. And it's just, it's honestly super duper basic and like that goes back to like, you know, whole reading theories and all the stuff about like give kids lots of like time reading and they'll be able to read better, which like isn't inherently like a problematic idea. Um, There's actually a lot out there that if I remember correctly says that that's a good thing, but that actually does help. But just the fact they're putting this like shiny tech sheen on it on like a very basic idea of how we can improve literacy it's just classic silicon valley (laughs) yeah well so next they'll be able to have like a special um uber for kids to get to school instead of school buses (laughs) (laughs) uber but for Uh, your school bus well maybe next time that's what we'll be able to talk about yeah Um, don't say it so uh it's a good good place for us to put a pin in it um so anyway uh if you liked our episode today Leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts so that new listeners can find us. If you have questions about any of the segments today, tweet us at, at @ladyxscience or hashtag LadySciPod. For notes, episode transcripts, to sign up for our monthly newsletter, read monthly issues, pitch us an idea or more, visit LadyScience.com. And we are an independent magazine. That means we depend on the support from our readers and listeners. You can support us through a monthly donation with Patreon, through a one-time donation, or, uh, nope, that's it. That's all we've got. Just visit <laughs> ladyscience.com slash donate. And until next time, you can find us on Facebook at, at LadyScienceMag and on Twitter at, at LadyXScience. Bye.